0: Hey there, it's Ashley Stahl here, counterterrorism professional turned career and business coach. And I am here for those moments when you look in the mirror and you realize it's time to make some sort of radical change or U-turn in your life so that you can stop operating on cruise control and start living your life on purpose. So join me here on the U-turn podcast every single week where you're going to be hearing from inspiring, insightful guests, be it CEOs, spiritual leaders, love experts, or of course, yours truly, so that you can become your very best self without having to take life so seriously, and don't forget, If you head on over to u-turnpodcast.com, that's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com, you're going to get access to show notes, which have books and resources mentioned by our guests, as well as access to one of my four free e-courses over at u-turnpodcast.com. Whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch that dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. Okay, enough about me. Let's get this party started with this week's guest. All right, everybody, on this week's episode of the U-Turn podcast, we're bringing on an amazing, fascinating, compelling individual, Jonathan Fields. He's the founder of the Good Life Project. He's an author, but on his last book, is called Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. He's currently working on a strategy to archetype different people in the workforce to help you get closer to your purpose. It's called Sparketypes, and we're going to use this episode to talk about how you can find your spark at work, get back to yourself, how you can really ask those deeper inquiring questions to really love what you're doing and take steps that are intentional and inspired in your career. So let's get started. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Okay, everybody, I'm here with Jonathan Fields, and I'm so excited to be tapping into his genius on finding your spark at work. And before this episode began recording, we were talking about some of the biggest challenges you can have at work. So Jonathan, let's just jump straight into it. Um, What do you think is the biggest challenge that people are facing at work?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, um, there are so many places, but probably the, the, the thing that I'm hearing over and over and over and over and over in the workplace, whether it's entrepreneurs or you work in a giant company is people are grappling with a sense of, um, being purposeless, meaning they go to work or sometimes it's the work they built themselves and they're, Doing, you know, exactly what's in their job description. They're doing it really well. They're excelling. They are even accomplished,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, but there's still this thing inside of them that feels like I don't have any genuine connection with purpose, with, mm-hmm. you know, being able to, to figure out what is that thing I'm here to do and express it in the work I do in the world. And that's f- incredibly frustrating for a lot of people.
0: And I guess I also wonder, you know, and I'm just going to challenge you here because I've been grappling with this myself is, is it, do you really feel it's true that your purpose is in your work Or, or how are you relating to it? Because I think in our society, there's like a tether between purpose and work. And I question, is our purpose in life even tied to work
2: at all?
1: Yeah, I think you can, you can manifest your purpose, um, in a number of different ways, but yeah. one of the purest expressions is work. And, you know, no small coincidence in the fact that we spend, you know, three quarters of our waking hours working. So if you're going to do that, you know, you might as well do it in a way that feels like it's a manifest expression of something deeper. And also, it's probably important to define what I mean by work.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: when I talk about work, you know, most people immediately say, well, that's the thing I get my paycheck for. Um, it may or may not be. Your work in the world may be the thing that you show up and get paid to do, but it also may not be that. And that's something that I think mm-hmm. folks are starting to grapple with um, to a certain extent as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And. So, for the person who's listening right now and and I'm sure there's many, and you know you're listening and you're thinking, "Yeah, I, I don't feel a sense of purpose, and I do feel stifled. like what are some steps or insights to kind of get somebody back to their spark?
1: Yeah, so there are a lot of on ramps to this, and it's funny because i've been um been working with entrepreneurs and companies for a long time now, and trying to approach this in a lot of different ways to figure out what resonates to come up with. A lot of different prompts, and we've been sort of testing and optimizing and building stuff for years now. And um, last year, I had this really funny experience that ties in with this, which is that I was uh, I was giving a keynote and then facilitating a group of people around this question. Um, and I walked them through some ideas, and I said, you know, like, let me share something, let me share, share you know, like what, what I would identify as my working purpose. And immediately about 10% of the hands in the room went up and they're like, can we steal
2: yours?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it's really interesting because when you sort of, when you talk about this, everybody's trying to find this thing, which is completely a hundred percent distinct to them, which is so in theory, there are billions of, you know, unique purposes, working purposes in the world. What I start to realize is that. In fact, there are not. In fact, there's a pretty small set of fundamental drivers of purpose that are universal across nearly everybody. And we get confused because we look to define it by staying really surface level. We look for really granular expressions. You know, so somebody will say, you know, like, my purpose is to help um, small animals find um, places of shelter in cities where nobody's looking after them. And that's a really interesting, unique, granular expression, but there's a much deeper thing that you're wired to do on the planet that can have a thousand different forms of expression. Mm. And if, if you never get to the deeper level um, to really understand what is that deeper driver, mm. then not only are you limiting yourself to whatever you think the current thing is, but you never understand yourself to a level where when that current thing ends, and it always will, you'll be able to turn back out into the world and say, okay, so if you're in a job, you're know, like, okay, so like, I, I'm, I'm feeling something good here. I'm feeling a strong sense of alignment, I'm feeling a strong sense of purpose. And then that job ends, or the project ends, or the person you've been working with, where you're really deriving it from, leaves. And you're like, okay, how do I recreate that? And you look to recreate the exact job instead of tasks that you were doing, but you never find it again. Mm. Because it doesn't replicate the deeper driver that was really moving you. So I think one really important thing is to kind of look deeper, um, to ask a bigger question. So for me, I can tell you. That for me, my sort of my spark, my imprint, my sparkotype is what we call them, you know, like that sort of a, which is the imprint that really reveals the essential nature of work that you're here to do. For me, I'm, I am what I would call a maker, mm. right? I, my call is to make things that move people. That can express itself and has expressed itself in so many different ways. So I build companies, I build experiences, I write books, I produce media. You know, these are all granular expressions, outward expressions of that deeper driver. But because I know the deeper driver is something which is kind of like core to my DNA, I can then look at almost any job, almost any company, almost any industry and understand how to create what I need. Um, regardless of what the job description says.
0: It's a really powerful distinction you're making, Jonathan, because I think a lot of the times we are conditioned to believe that we follow what we like or what we're interested in, which I've talked a lot about the distinction between passion versus interest. But the distinction I'm hearing from you is really what drives you versus what I think a lot of people are looking at when they're choosing a job or a career path is what they like. Um, And what drives you couldn't be more of a different thing, is there a certain amount of drivers or a certain amount of sparkotypes um that could help people kind of consider this?
1: Yeah, I mean what we've identified in our work right now is ten. Okay. Um, could that change through more research over time as we get more data? Yeah, sure. You know, to me, this is, <laughs> this, this is worth, that's in a state of perpetual beta and, and, you know, I will never lock it down because we're constantly testing and optimizing and learning. But there really are, you know, a, a fairly small set of things. We've, we've actually created an assessment tool that, um, that lets you do that. Um, but, you know, the, the bigger idea that you were talking about, the, the distinction between something that you'd like to do, um, and even something that you're good at
2: mm-hmm.
1: versus something that gives you this deep sense of I'm doing the work that I'm here to do. Um, it's different. You know, there are plenty of things that I'm interested in. There are plenty of things that I think are kind of cool. You know, but does that make me wake up in the morning and feel like I matter. The work that I'm doing matters. The contribution I'm making to my ecosystem and the bigger world matters. There's a deep sense of sustained meaning
2: mm-hmm.
1: that is like, you know, just sort of emerging organically out of the work that I do that's nourishing on a level that an interest and a like just never will touch, you know. Right. And there's a sustained element to that, which a passing interest, um, may kind of give you like this momentary glimpse of, Mm -hmm. but then you'll kind of, you'll be through it pretty quickly and looking for the next dopamine hit.
0: And how how does somebody find that inner peace? I mean, obviously, it's a huge question. I feel like we need 70 podcast episodes to get down to it. But I know you have the 10 sparkotypes. Does it start with knowing your sparkotype or does it start? I just, I'm going to keep saying that word because it's so fun to say sparkotype.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um. For us, that's the starting point. It's kind of funny because you know the the archetypic system that that has sort of been in in the work for years, um, but it, it didn't come together until the last year or so when we started pulling together a lot of different work and a lot of different strands. But the process is like we zoom the lens out. Here's the process. Whether you want to call it sparknotes or whether you want to do some other work, it always starts with fierce self inquiry. So we like to go out into the world and just like do this job and see how I feel about it and then do the next job and see how I feel about it and do the next job and see how I feel about it. And that's actually valuable. Yeah. But it's a lot more valuable once you've done a little bit of work before that, once that's you've cool. done a little bit of really intelligent self-inquiry. So part of like what, what we're looking to do with, um, this archetype, you know, with the archetyping system we've created is give you a foundation that says, okay – Here's something that you can know about yourself, as like on day one, you know, like that that the essential nature of the work that I'm here to do, the core driver, purpose, expression, and flow in my life, is this type of work, right? But that's just step one. That that's insanely valuable for most people. The moment they see it and hear it, they're like, "Oh, I've actually known that since I was six, but I've denied that that actually is the essence of who I am because, you know, either culturally." There's not a conventional path to call that my work or it just scares me because it resonates so truthfully.
2: Mm.
1: So most of us actually know that, but you know, tools like the spark tip assessment will bring you back to it. Um, and there, there are probably other tools that will bring you back to that space too. So I don't want to just focus on the work we've been doing. That's step one though. You know, that's not where you end from there. Then you start to ask the question. Okay. So what are my fuller set of preferences? You know, when I take that. Well, that tells me something really essential to my DNA. What do you mean but by What does that look like when I'm out in the world and yeah. working? Mm-hmm. You know, so then, like, the, our, our process is you build a fuller profile. You know, we actually, I don't know if you're familiar at all with, uh in the startup world over the last five years, the idea of canvases has kind of become really popular with business model canvases and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea because essentially what a canvas is, it's it's, it's one-page That identifies, basically it profiles an entire business idea concept. All the things that are most important about it that would define it are there on one page. So to me, the next step is you create your own canvas. You know, for us, we call that your spark canvas. And so you take that one nugget that you start with and there are another nine or 10 things that are really, really, really important to know about yourself. You essentially, you're profiling yourself. You know, you're profiling your, your preferences, your orientations, and your wiring so that you get to know yourself on a level that you've probably really never understood before, and this one thing, basically, you know, this one profile you create yourself lets you then turn out into the world and understand on a completely different level what to say yes or no to. So if you want to go try a job, or if you're even looking for a new path, right, and you're trying to figure out, okay, Does this sound like the type of thing that might nourish me on a level beyond the paycheck? You can actually look at this profile and say, does it check the boxes or does it conflict strongly with what I need to actually fill myself up? Or even worse, does it clearly conflict so strongly that I can tell already it's going to empty me out? Um, so I think, you know, sort of building a bigger profile is really important. Once you have that, then you can go out into the world. You can run those same experiments. Right. You start to interact with all sorts of jobs and experiences and companies, but you do it in a much more intentional way and you look at it not as, OK, I've got the job I'm going to have for life. This has got to work. Yes. You look at it as saying, huh, you know what? My job is actually not to run the company or climb up the ladder. My job, especially in the earlier you know, parts of life, very often in your 20s and 30s, is to really try and understand who I am, and then run a series of deliberate experiments that tell me a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, so I can keep narrowing the field of understanding and then find myself able to consistently find and do work and build on that. That just keeps me in this place of feeling sparked, feeling amazing while I'm doing it. And it's not an instant process, (laughs) which people very often don't like to hear.
2: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, Mm -hmm. this is a process of deliberate, methodical work, but if you can do that for a handful of years, and that sets up decades of deeper fulfillment, then, to me, it just makes so much sense to do it.
0: Well, and this also begs the question, though, Jonathan, around the five-year plan, the ten-year plan, all these different questions. For me, I'm a grower, and so who I am, like when I started my career coaching and job hunting course, you know, five years ago, isn't who I am today. So what is your thoughts around your system and figuring out your type and your, your motivators, your drivers, and also being able to come up with a plan? Like, do you believe in the five-year plan? Or what's your approach about that?
1: Um, I think it's really good to invest some time in identifying a path that sounds interesting and then hold it really lightly and allow space for growth and serendipity. Amazing. You know, because if you, so here's, here's what we know. If you say my job, like I'm at point A, right? And my job is to get to point B as fast as I can. Like, here's my five-year plan. This is where I want to be. I want to be the executive vice president doing this kind of work, earning this kind of money and in this company, right? And then you put your head down, you reverse engineer a map, and you just – you do everything that you need to do to hit that. What we know is that very likely you will hit that. What we also know is that very likely the fact that you've put blinders on to every possibility, um, every permutation, every variation, every opportunity that's come your way in those five years that may have taken you off that plan – um, but brought you to a place of exponentially greater grace, you will ignore. So you'll find yourself five years down. You'll find yourself having accomplished this five-year goal. Almost always, Dan Gilbert writes about this in, in um, uh, a lot of his research on happiness, we are horrible at projecting um, accurately how we're going to feel when we get somewhere down the road.
2: So true. We think
1: we're going to feel one way, and then we get there and we're like, oh, like yeah. I completely don't feel that way at all. So inevitably, you're going to get to your five-year goal more quickly if you just totally heads down, focused on it. But there's also a really good chance that you will have lost the opportunity. You will reject it. You've been blind to the opportunity to do so many cooler and different things. And then when you get to that thing that you worked so hard to get to, it's not going to make you feel the way you thought you wanted to feel. And then you're going to say, you know, well let me just try doing something else now or just a little bit longer in this path, just a little bit longer. You know, the reason I don't feel the way I want to feel is because I just need to push a little bit further down this path. And then a little bit further down this path, refusing to ever open to the possibility that maybe there's a different path, you know, maybe there's a different set of experiments that you want to run. Um, Mm -hmm. But we get so invested in executing on a plan and we get so shamed sometimes by society for um bailing on it that we feel like we just have to do what we said we were going to do and sometimes that's a good thing but sometimes it's a disastrous thing
0: yes i think there's such a beauty in people who are willing to quit when because i think quitting is shamed you know in society like you're, you're a quitter but isn't there such a beauty in someone who's willing to look at time they've invested in something a career that they've put in and look at it and say it's time to call it quits this isn't for me. Um, do you have any insight on how somebody can get that courage or overcome that fear of that shame?
1: Um, yeah, probably a couple things. I think, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a little bit like a broken record here. The more I love you a good broken
0: record. Hit, do it.
1: Yeah. The more, you, the more you kind of hit pause on the treadmill of accomplishment and you just take space to actually say, who the heck am I and what do I actually care about and what's meaningful to me and really intelligently profile yourself. The more you're able to actually look at moments when, um, you know, it really makes sense not to keep pushing forward and say, you know what, there's such a high level of conflict between who I am, what I value, what I need in in my work and in my life and what I'm doing right now. And I don't see a really easy way to resolve these conflicts that it makes complete logical sense for me to walk away from this. Even if those around me think I'm nuts, that level of self-knowledge I think really steals you yeah. to make decisions like that. When, when I, in a very past life, I was a lawyer and I came out of the SEC. I had, you know, like the fancy government job. And then I went into one of the largest firms in New York city, you know, like amazing, powerful, smart, great salary. And I realized very quickly that I was not um, in any way, shape, or form happy. Mm -hmm. But I also had the job that so many people aspired to have. So walking away from that you know, was not the easiest thing in the world. And knowing that like, once I actually announced that I was leaving the firm, and in fact leaving the profession, I heard all this hush talk. And the hush talk was generally from among associates who were mid-level associates at the level I was at. And it was all along the lines of, what a shame. He couldn't hack it, you know, and Mm. how could you go to law school and pay for law school and then invest, you know, in a a chunk of years in a career and then just throw it all in, you know, like, you know, like, what a shame. And I'm thinking to myself, um, well, actually, the other notes that I was getting were from partners who were sort of quietly saying. Well, Godspeed.
2: Yeah. Keep me in the loop.
1: You know, like I can't do this now at this point in my life, which, again, is a whole different conversation. But but yeah, you know, like this this is a good call. Um, And one of the things that I realized about the folks who are looking at this as, wow, that's, you know, so stupid, you're giving so much up, is that they're asking the wrong question. You know, you change your questions and you get answers that enable rather than disempower. So they were asking the question, how can you give up the money you spent on school and the time you've invested in your career already? And the question I started to ask was, I was around 30 years old at the time, and I figured I had another 40, 50 working years in me. And the question I was asking is, how can I ever justify limiting the next 40 or 50 working years of my life by what's happened in the last six or seven. That makes, like, there's no rational argument for that. Yeah. Um, and when you start to, you know, like, so it's a blend of, of self-knowledge and the ability to reframe and ask better questions that I think really fortifies you. And I'll throw in a third thing, which is to surround yourself with people who have a similar value set to you that are seeking more than checks on a ladder of accomplishment and actually really pursuing a deeper level of fulfillment in the work they're doing.
0: Amazing. And I can't help but picture you right now, Jonathan, 40, 50 more years of work. You're going to be in an elderly home with a laptop. (laughs) (laughs) That's a while, but cheers to that. You know, I've always told um, my millennial job seeker clients in my courses that um, your degree is here to serve you. You're not here to serve it. Yeah, tell me
1: more about that. What do you mean by that? I'm
0: curious. I think that a lot of people, especially at a young age, were asked to figure out who we are on some level in the form of a degree, you know, whether and a lot of people marry their degree and they think, okay, because I did pre-law, because I got this JD or because I got this MBA, I need to honor it by doing a career that expresses it and that uses it. Uh, and I just keep reminding these people, like, just because you got this degree, you're not here to worship it and express it in your career if you don't want to. It's here to serve you. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it's just pretty cut and dry concept unless I'm not explaining it right. But
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny, too, because in the world of, you know, if you kind of switch gears a little bit and you look at the world of tech-driven entrepreneurship these days over the last 10 years – In that world, the idea of um, coming up with an idea, um, you know, like creating what they call a minimum viable product, an MVP, like invest as little as you can to get, you know, a a probably entirely embarrassing prototype to market almost just, just for the purpose of letting people interact with it and tell you if it's actually interesting, if it's gonna work or not, you know, whether it's changeable or whether you should just bail on it. That's the way that entrepreneurship tends to happen in that world. So constantly like trying things and stumbling and failing and iterating on that is just a way of life.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: become pretty accepted in that world. But in traditional career building, we're, we're still not there. Yeah. You know? But I think that concept, that approach still really applies
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to the, the bigger concept of how am I going to figure out you know, the work I'm here to do and then build a life and a living around it.
0: Yes. So beautiful. And I guess my biggest question for everybody listening is like, what would you say is for for everybody listening right now? And I know you have your spark attack assessment and self inquiry, somebody who's listening right now. And God bless them. If you're listening at your desk because you hate your job. I'm sure there's a few of you. (laughs) I've been there. I get it. Um, And they're thinking, yeah, I want out. And, um, you know, maybe they look up your assessment and they start to journal. What are some other steps that people can take to get more connected to themselves?
2: Yeah,
1: um, so the unlock the master key for all this is awareness. Yep. Um, we have become so unaware, both of the world around us and of the world within us. You know, we're, we kind of like live on a day-to-day basis driven by pace, driven by frenzy, and driven by distraction. And it's really bad in terms of our relationships with the world and in terms of the work that we do, but it's also really bad for us because you wake up in the morning and you live a reactive life, what I would call reactive life syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, the moment the average person wakes up, the first thing they touch is their cell phone. And the first thing they do is they check whatever is the place they look for messaging, whether it's Snapchat or Instagram or email. And from that moment forward, you have now just chosen to surrender your day to whatever like the warring you know, agenda of attention and demands are that everybody else but you thinks is important. And so I think one of the, one of the, 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 the real early things to do is just really little habits that reclaim your attention. Wow. You know, that reclaim a state of awareness and, and, and eliminate the reactive way of going into your day and start to just say, okay, I'm gonna wake up. Let me not actually touch that device first thing in the morning. Um, let me actually just take a moment, lie, breathe, and ask myself how I feel. You know, what's going through my head? How do I feel physically? How do I feel emotionally right now? How do I feel psychologically? What state am I in? Um, And and what's most important to me? Um, Things that ground you and center you are really, they're the, the, that keep pulling you back into present awareness of who you are, what matters to you, and how you feel in any given moment in time. Those are the gateway drugs to being able to take action with anything, anything that's meaningful. Because until you actually are aware of these things on a moment-to-moment basis, you have no idea how you feel. You have no idea who you are. You have no idea what matters. And when we live entirely reactively, we live completely mindlessly and unaware. And we can never get to that place. People are often telling me, like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm that person. I'm at the desk. I'm in the office. I'm in the, the cubic may And be, I don't know how to decide. I don't know, you know. And I don't have time to decide. And what they're really saying is I don't know myself well enough to understand what to say yes or no to. Because when you do, um, the next steps become pretty apparent. Mm-hmm. You know, so the problem isn't so much an inability to decide it's an ignorance of who we are
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that's sort of that's the real deeper work. Um, that's, I think where it all starts. I mean, for me, and there are a lot of tools to get there There's a lot of self inquiry tools. For me, one of the things that I use to build awareness is, um, a medita- meditation practice. So yeah. I have a daily mindfulness practice. I wake up first thing in the morning and I have a morning routine and I wake up before anyone else in my, in my house. And the first thing I do is I roll out of bed. I'm, I'm not social because I'm not a morning person. So it has nothing to do with like, hey, I'm up, let's go meditate. I'm I was grumpy. just
0: thinking, I'm like, oh my God, it's one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, no, trust
1: me, I, I am not remotely okay, human. Dear. You're
0: rolling out of bed with a frown, but, but ready to meditate.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but it's the meditation that takes me there. So I'll roll out of bed, it's really quiet. I'll yell, I'll sit on the couch. I do five minutes of gentle breathing exercises, which kind of get me into a better space and reset my nervous system a little bit. And then I do 25-minute um, just really simple mindfulness meditation. And for me, I began this practice um, eight years ago now, largely on my knees, not because I wanted to, but because I was trying to get through a really hard experience. And that practice was brutally hard to start. But because I was struggling so much I kept with it and over a window of time it took me from being um in pain, struggling, massively reactive and unaware, to starting to be much more intentional, to being so much more aware of where my thoughts were on any given moment in time. So instead of spinning doom and gloom and I suck and this sucks and this is terrible and having no clue that that's what I was spinning and that I was you know in, to a certain extent creating my reality by thought spinning I was able to catch myself so much more easily and be like wait a minute what am I actually telling myself mm. is this rooted in truth and how much control do I really have over this you know so once I started to be able to get to that place I gained the ability to then start to direct my awareness, to direct my attention and my thoughts in a much more deliberate way, um, in a much more constructive way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I went from being really stressed out, reactive, struggling, to kind of baseline okay. And then that same practice over a period of years has taken me to a profoundly better place. You know, so I can, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a tool set that I use every single day in every interaction um, it, it rises to the level of what I would call exquisite attention, which is the ability to literally cultivate and place a hyper-focused state of attention within a process of either self-inquiry or a conversation or a relationship. So part of my job now, like you're doing right here is I sit in a studio, you know, for an hour and a half very often with people where I have to hold this intense face-to-face space and go places which very often are very uncomfortable.
0: Beautiful.
1: Um, and this capacity lets me do that, um, with so much more ease.
0: I love that. That is so insightful. And I just wanna be commenting for everyone listening who is thinking about meditating. I meditate as well. I'm not as consistent as you, Jonathan. I joined a meditation lounge in Los Angeles and I go they have classes all day and I just go whenever my schedule permits. So I'm not. I, uh,
1: just, I just love that there are meditation lounges now.
0: Oh, my God. I love it. Right. This is the world. We li- got to get my green juice. Got to go to the meditation right. lounge, you know. Um, but what I will say is that for those of you who don't want to spend the money on something like that, you can go on YouTube and you can type in any sort of issue that you're dealing with, whether it's anxiety um, and you can type in guided meditation. I have found that it t- it's taken me a while to get to a place where you are, Jonathan, where I can be quiet and meditate. I think my mind is just so noisy that the guided meditation was kind of a start to get me in. And um, just a suggestion for those of you, if you live in a big city, to maybe look up and see is there a meditation place where you can get guided meditations or if you want to go on YouTube. Do you have any other suggestions for somebody who's just starting? Because it's overwhelming.
1: Yep. Some, some great, super easy ones. Um, so there are some really great free meditation apps now also. Um, Headspace Mm -hmm. is fantastic. And the first couple of levels are completely free where they kind of do like a 10 day, 10 minute a day challenge. It's all guided and they, and then you get a little bit longer with each one. I use an app called Insight Timer and the main function is it's a, it's a meditation timer where, you know, it's set for 25 minutes and it chimes every three minutes for me because that's my choice. But, they also have, um, at this point, probably thousands of guided practices from hundreds of different teachers. Many of them, the you know, like some of the most legendary meditation and visualization teachers in the world. Yeah. And, it, and it's all free. And it's beautiful because I'll regularly just On check Hesby? out something from Tara Brach or someone else and fold them through it. And I would also – so so it's great because it's portable. You can literally – you can just sit on a bench somewhere you can sit I've meditated on planes on subways on you know and maybe it's just five minutes but so start short use some sort of free app um, are you talking
0: about headspace for the one with all of the teachers
1: Oh no the one with all the teachers is called insight timer
0: insight timer okay great yeah. we'll put that in the show notes um, too
1: yeah great app and um, and it's a great one also because you can play with all sorts of different different styles and voices and teachers and approaches and stuff like that and just see what fits yeah you know and eventually you'll start to get a handful where you're like you know I love listening to this one in the evening I love listening to this one when I'm walking on the beach I love this one first thing in the morning Mm. Um, it's a great way for I think a lot of people who are on the go and massively stressed to be able to access it beautiful
0: beautiful and, you know, we talked earlier before we started recording about just the idea that everybody is distracted and we talked a little bit about, you know, morning practices to stay out of the distraction and get connected to yourself. But what are some other ways that you can suggest people finding flow? Because I'm writing a book right now actually called U-Turn because this is U-Turn podcast. So I've got U-Turn book. Obviously, I'm going to be doing so many U-Turns and probably going end up in the same spot. <laughs> By the end. But um, one of the things that I think is really important is flow, and it's been really a big challenge for me personally writing my book to have a day of flow. Um, so what are some thoughts you have for everybody in the workforce now, even if they're not doing what they love, to find that access of flow?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and maybe it would be helpful for those who aren't familiar with the term to kind of yeah. just take an extra couple of seconds to define it, or at least what I mean when I when I say flow. So um. There was some really incredible work done by um, social scientist and researcher Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi a chunk of years back, a couple decades ago now, who was looking at people, very often, um, people who, like, like musicians, or people who would seem to vanish into this place that would become hyperproductive, hyperproductive completely and utterly absorbed, and and he kind of wanted to know what was going on, and you know, how did they feel in that space? And also what were the circumstances that created it? What he found was that being in this flow state was actually really important to um, fulfillment, to feeling like you were really happy and satisfied and doing what you were here to do. And the state is very often defined by a sense where, um, you're completely and utterly absorbed in the work. Like, you lose the distinction between you and what you're doing. So a musician, you know, playing an instrument, they just kind of become the music or become, uh, you know, the, the instrument. Um, somebody who is a, a coder, like, if you code, it's not unusual for that person to literally just completely become absorbed in the work that they're doing it's almost like they're part of the machine like there's something flowing or channeling through them you lose a sense of time so time tends to fuse. very often it either goes in the blink of an eye or it, or it goes it kind of slows down um and this is a sense where people report it as being almost like in a state of bliss um it's not defined as happy or sad it's almost a state beyond emotion and it's extraordinary and essentially what what to me said is the more time we can spend there the better a life we live. And we have the ability to cultivate that to a certain extent at work. So if you think about those things I was just talking about, you know, it is an intrinsic expression of the work that you genuinely feel called into to do. And that's kind of what we were talking about with you know, sparkotypes and really identifying and profiling yourself, understanding what that work is for you. But also there are environmental controls. And I think this is where people get tripped up Because part of your ability to be in that space is also how much control you have or you think you have over your environment, over the resources that you need to actually do this thing
2: Mm -hmm. that
1: you're working on. And here's where we stumble because a lot of us, like, well, we're working on this project and I actually really do like it. And I'm building this spreadsheet or this code or this team or this product and it's super cool. I love it. When I have the opportunity to get lost in it, I do, and it's incredible, but I keep getting pulled out of it. You know, I keep getting emails. I keep getting texts. I keep getting all these different messages. I have meetings I have to go to constantly. So how do you deal with that, right? How do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, is actually pretty straightforward, and, and sort of how much you're willing to do this or not is going to depend on who you are and the environment you're working in. But if you – you have to get intentional about creating the expectations of your ability to be available um, on demand. And if you can sort of start to control access to you and block out uninterrupted windows, that starts to give you a much higher – likelihood it gives you these windows where you can drop into that space for longer windows of time rather than trying to get into it in three to five minute bursts it just doesn't work Mm -hmm. you know if you can set aside two hours and basically set the expectation hey listen like you know from 10 to 12 every day or from two to four every day i am in hyper productive hyper focus get stuff done mode you know Nobody, I will not be responding to messages. I will not be like doing meetings in this window and time. And if you want me to do the work that you hired me to do, if you want the most extraordinary work product that I'm capable of, then this is the way that we, that, that I need to work. If you want me to not be able to give you that level, then you can, you know, <laughs> then don't agree to this and interrupt me and set stuff up. But you're paying me to enter this state where I give you something magical. And so, so, you know, it, it's sort of like demanding or asking for support to be able to do that. And that's where I said, you know, depending on how much you're willing to do that in your own language and how much, um, how much leverage or power you have within an organizational or relationship, um, that will control your ability to do that to a certain extent. And, and you can also say, Hey, listen, let's run an experiment. Let me block off this window for the next three weeks. And then look at my work product, you know, look at how I am, look at how I am in the office and compare that to any other three window. And if we see a notable difference, then we're both going to be happy.
0: I love that you brought it back to performance because I know with employers, whenever you ask something, it comes back to results. So great. And um, as far as books, like, do you have any favorite books around flow or around purpose? What do you suggest? I know you've written some books, so I would love to hear about
1: that too yeah i mean the person who i just brought up whose <laughs> name you'll you'll have to put in the show notes because it's not easy especially for uh westerners to spell mihali chiksen mihai wrote okay, sort of yeah. a seminal book okay. um, which is called flow okay and he's written a handful of other books um since then and i love it because it's research-based you know it's not metaphysical it's like this is nuts and bolts research-based about people um, entering the state when they're doing their best work. Um, Stephen Kotler, since then, has written another book. I think it's called Becoming Superhuman, where it's sort of an updated look at the elements that would allow you to step most easily
2: mm. into
1: flow states across all sorts of different types of, um, of jobs and tasks and functions and stuff like that and fields. Great. So I think those are two really interesting books
2: to look at.
0: And I wanted to just bring it back quickly to sparkotypes. Like, is there a really, like, is there a super common one and a least common one? Uh, I was just kind of curious what you're
1: finding. Yeah, Um, my answer to you right now is too early to release that data. But I expect that we will definitely see ones um, that are much more popular than others. Um, And also there's, you know, it probably also makes sense to share that in – the way that we've actually set up our tools is that um, we don't – You know, it's not sort of marketing stake where it's like no matter how you answer the questions, you're going to get one of these things. Because what we found is that there will be a certain subset of people who actually complete an assessment and the data tells us – their answers tell us that actually they don't have enough um, actual personal data to be able to, for us to assign them um, a specific type at that moment in time. And the question is like, well, why? Does that mean they don't have one? And the answer is no, everybody has one. In fact, we have what we call a primary and a shadow. Your primary is the essential nature of the work that you're here to do, and your shadow is something that you've gotten pretty good at, you're pretty competent at, you probably enjoy doing, but fundamentally, if you're being really honest with yourself, you do it in service of being able to do the work of your primary better. Mm-hmm. So if we can't assign that based on some the way that somebody has done it, what we'll do is we, we call the, that sort of a phase that you're in called shapeshifting. and what we've seen is that as a general rule that happens when somebody has, very often it will be when they're much earlier in their career and they just haven't done enough, they haven't lived enough work, they haven't tried enough things, they have enough sort of personal data to be able to actually have have understand what their preferences are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and it's not that they don't have the preferences; it's that they haven't bounced them against the world enough for um, for it to sort of like really become clear, mm-hmm. and um, that so the job of that person is actually to run a series of experiments specific to each one. And very often that will trigger exactly what it is. But the, um, I mean, like I said, when we started the conversation, my primary type is I'm a maker. I, I fundament, my fundamental call is to make things, to take an idea and make it manifest in the world. And I almost don't care. I was a painter as a kid. I was an entrepreneur. I, I've created almost anything. As long as I am invested in the process of making ideas manifest, I'm the happiest person in the world. Wow. Um, my, my shadow sparkotype is actually what we call the scientist. And so the scientist is all about, um, almost like a near obsessive focus on pursuing a burning question, solving problems and puzzles. So what's interesting is for me, I, I, I kind of w- was confused for a while. I was like, well, maybe that is, that's the thing that really is driving me. But what I realized is that, I do. I've gotten really good at solving problems at, you know, like figuring out puzzles. Um, but I always do it in service of being able to make something better. And the minute I have the problem solved and the puzzle figured out and the tool, the solution on a level that allows me to turn back to the making process, boom, I'm there and I'm like done investigating. I just want to get back into the process of making. So it's super informative for me. What we've seen is scientists, um, there are a lot of scientists in the world. (laughs) Um, But I don't want to go out and sort of say, like, there's, you know, there's a really clear separation quite yet. But probably in the pretty near future, um, we will be releasing, like, a chunk of data that sort of, like, shows the distribution between the different uh, sparkotypes.
0: Got it. And I'm curious, like, you're so wise, and I would love to know, like, what is, what do you feel is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten?
1: Ah, hmm. I've gotten a lot. Um,
0: Sure. Yeah, it sounds like
2: it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's it's kind of strange. Um, Two voices popped into my head when you asked that. Um, And two voices and one experience. Um, The experience is when I was a kid, my mom was, my mom's wired the same way I am. She's a maker, hardcore through and through. She was a potter when I was a kid. And she very much marched to the beat of her own drum and she just did the thing that she wanted to do. So seeing that was a really powerful lesson to me that you can be this hyper creative kind of culturally different person and carve out what you want to carve out. And the other two actual sort of like voices that essentially were saying the same thing, um, but thousands of years apart that popped into my head was um, there's a classic um, text called the Bhagavad Gita which is um, essentially about um, a person who is charged with going out and doing the work in the world that they have to do even though they find it um, really hard and sometimes unpleasant. And there's a line in the Gita that translates roughly to far better to do your own work badly than to do another person's work well.
2: Mm.
1: and that I think is such a powerful lesson and that has come back to me the other voice that kind of said something similar to me was a friend of mine, Seth Godin who has said that in various ways and shapes or forms to so many people for decades and um, he's kind of like the modern reminder of that uh, to me
0: Mm -hmm. I love that and what does it mean to you? How do you hold that? Better to do your own work badly
1: It means that Staying true to who you are and why you're here and doing the work to understand that and then build your, 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 your living in your life around it is really, really important. And to the extent that other people might have a different path for you in mind and you might feel familial or, or peer or societal pressure. Um, to do something else. And you might even be good at that something else, you know, on a level where it's giving you some reward. If you do that and you still know deep down, you just know that's not it. Mm -hmm. That it's important to to, to pursue that thread. It's important to honor that voice. It's important to find the fortitude to continue to explore what is it and to acknowledge the fact that at the end of the day, Nobody lives your life but you. Nobody can experience the highs but you. Um, and nobody can experience the challenge and the emotion and the sorrow and the struggle on a level that you will
2: mm-hmm.
1: based on the decisions you live in your own life. So to a certain extent, you have to let go of expectations about the life that you you should be living imposed on you by other people and know that it is their limitations, their fears, their concerns, sometimes healthy and sometimes legitimate. That are being imposed on your life mm. at a certain point if you're feeling like that's your reality the question becomes um will you choose will you become intentional and if not now then when
0: i love that that's so beautiful and i know we've had you here for a while so i just wanted to ask you one final question then you can let us all know where we can find you Um, is there, is there something inspiring you right now or a fad that you're into? I'm just curious in what it is.
1: Yeah. Physical making. Um, so I have been creating my, my primary creative outlet for a chunk of years has been more in the sort of intellectual property or the digital side of things. So I write, I produce media, um, a lot of digital stuff, but I have been missing so fiercely actual manual labor, working with my hands, Mm -hmm. taking raw material and making something physical out of it. And I think I'm not alone. Um, So I actually spent half of every week for about a month um, earlier this year, driving out to um, a small little town in the middle of Amish country in Pennsylvania. And learning how to build my own guitar with my hands from scratch, from, like, just raw pieces of wood. And this was hard. This was 13-hour days. This was this was not, you know, there were times where it was just, but, I mean, literally talk about flow states. We would start work at 8 in the morning. We would take a single 40-minute break for lunch. That's it, the entire day. We would often wrap at 9 o'clock at night. Wow. And I had zero sense of time. The only understanding I had of time was I knew at certain point I looked up and it was no longer light out. But it could have been an hour. It could have been a half an hour. It could have been six hours. I was in my happy space doing what I'm here to do. And it reconnected me with how much I treasure actual, the, the physical process of making something with your hands. And I started to share that. You know, I shared a, a whole bunch of pictures um, as I was doing it on Instagram and online, stuff like that, and the response from people really validated the fact that I am not alone in yearning to get back to that space of physical making.
0: Wow, I love that. You know, I think often people might look at someone like me or even like you and think, wow, they're scattered. They have so many things going on. But really, I think what it is, is a willingness to pursue your interests or your passions and a willingness to let them go if they don't fit right um but like to play full out and really experience them and i think by doing that you you have these moments like with your guitar and by the way, I'm, I'm hoping you invite us all to a concert right now, but I don't think that's about to happen.
1: <laughs> well, the funny thing is I actually don't play guitar very well. It was just really was like that. much more about the process of making So Everyone's like, oh, you have to play music for us. And I'm like, trust me, you don't want to hear me play for you. Oh,
0: Jonathan, after I do my next meditation class, get my green juice, nothing would light me up more than walking down the Venice Beach boardwalk and seeing you with a bunch of guitars <laughs> on a blanket, like ready to sell the guitars. <laughs> hey, first buyer right here. Um... All right, well, where can everybody find you? This has been such an amazing
1: interview. Yeah, I mean, the best place to find me is uh, goodlifeproject.com, and that's sort of a portal for everything else.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, take care. All right, it's Ash here, and I'm straight off the episode with Jonathan Fields from The Good Life Project, and I just am so inspired because I think that he is someone who really has his own approach to life purpose, figuring out what drives you, and there's just so many nuggets in there, but I left this episode feeling called to read you a passage from one of my favorite books, and it's Stephen Pressfield's book, Turning Pro, Uh, and it's about shadow careers. It's It's on page 13 for those of you who end up getting the book. And it says, sometimes when we're terrified of embracing our true calling, we'll pursue a shadow calling instead. That shadow career is a metaphor for our real career. Its shape is similar. Its its contours feel tantalizingly the same. But a shadow career entails no real risk. If we fail at a shadow career, the consequences are meaningless to us. Are you pursuing a shadow career? Are you getting your PhD in Elizabethan studies because you're afraid to write the tragedies and comedies that you know you have inside of you? Are you living the drugs and booze half of the musician's life without actually going out and writing the music? Are you working in support or a support capacity for an innovator because you're afraid to risk becoming an innovator yourself? If you're dissatisfied with your current life, ask yourself what your current life is a metaphor for. That metaphor will point you towards your true calling. There's so many of you, I'm sure, that are listening to this episode, and I certainly was listening to the conversation as I was having it, and thinking that it's so tempting so often to pursue something that's on the periphery of what we actually want to be doing, because the vulnerability of actually doing what we want to be doing gives us the opportunity to actually experience failure, to actually experience rejection, in a new level. And that's why I think the mindset work of really questioning the beliefs that you hold about what does it mean when you are rejected? What does it mean when you fail in an endeavor? Because that meaning that you're making out of yourself, out of the situation, that is what's holding you back from the vulnerability of actually getting clear within yourself of what that truer calling is so that you can go out and you can get it. For the longest time, Uh, I thought that maybe I would be a diplomat for the UN. And I'm sure that, you know, in another life, that would have been really awesome for me. But I ended up, you know, getting a top 25 degree in the world, my master's in war studies. I ended up learning foreign languages. And what did I do? Instead of going over to the UN and really intentionally starting that career, I went over to the Pentagon I just took whatever I could find, even though I got amazing job offers, because I thought, well, at least I'm in the government. At least I'm within reach of the senators and the diplomats. But what's really true is that you have to get intentional. And although my career worked out exactly how it was supposed to, and I was running all of these, as Jonathan would say, and as I would say, experiments, and calibrating with the universe to figure out who I am and what I really want, I will say that I was pursuing a shadow career In the Pentagon I wanted to help people I wanted to be of service but the way I wanted to do it at that time at that chapter of my career was through the UN and I told myself well you know that's really hard that's really far away so I'm just gonna go get some sort of job in the government I'm just gonna hang out over here Uh, so I want to call you out right now if you're doing that right now my homework assignment for you is to write about a time where you recently experienced rejection And when you go back into that memory, think about that moment, really bring yourself back to it, what you were wearing, where you were standing, what the conversation was. Paint that picture in your mind and write down what was happening for you on a mental level. What were the thoughts you were having about yourself, about the other person, about the universe, about the situation? If you believe in God, maybe you you were mad at God, who knows? just write down all the thoughts. This is wrong. I'm stupid. Whatever came up for you. And I would love for you to follow that with forgiving yourself for believing those thoughts and write a new thought. So for example, if you believe that you were stupid in that moment, there was a part of you that believed that. I forgive myself for buying into the belief that I'm stupid and updating it with the truth. The truth is, I'm wise. I'm experimenting. Whatever the truth is for you, you want to write that down, put your hand over your heart and repeat it because it's time we all get closer to the truth of who you are. It's time. I feel like I'm about to preach in this church the truth of who you are. All right, this is Ashley Stahl signing off. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the U-Turn Podcast. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. You can find all of the resources that our guests mentioned on our show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N Podcast.com. Also, don't forget, on the website, we've got our four free e-courses, whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch your dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. I'll talk to you soon. Can't wait to connect
2: on next week's episode.